calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash contagious. 11.50 a.m. The Interrogation Dew hated the biohazard suit almost as much as Perry did. He'd always made fun of the human condoms, but now that he'd actually caved in and worn one, he felt jinxed, as though the next time he didn't wear one, he'd catch something for sure. With the new 45 and a hip holster worn outside the suit, Dew imagined he'd look like a total douchebag. Perry just stared at the two caged hatchlings. They looked lethargic, defeated, maybe sitting next to the center cage containing Perry's decomposed shooting victim mellowed them out. They'd barely moved in the last 20 minutes. What do they say, kid? They're still not saying anything, Perry said. They just seem to be out of it. Can't you read their minds or something? Perry shook his head. It's not like that. The triangles are still connected to human brains, I think that's why I can hear chatter from hosts. But the hatchlings aren't connected to human brains. They can talk to me, but only when they want to. But you're still hearing that triangle chatter. Perry nodded. Yeah. It's getting stronger, too, which is kind of weird. It usually only gets stronger when I'm tracking them down. Getting closer. Maybe they have more power now. I don't know, Dew. Maybe we don't need these fuckers at all. Can I shoot another one? Do leaned down to look into the cage on the left. What do you say, champ? Should we shoot you? Both of the hatchlings stirred. They blinked their black eyes, seemed to gain a little life. Something's getting them moving, Do said. They afraid of the gun? No, that's not it, Perry said. He closed his eyes, seemed to concentrate. The chatter's getting a little louder. A lot louder. Wait, Do. I'm picking up thoughts of a gate and a tall building. You recognize it? Perry's eyes stayed closed, but he shook his head. No, not really. This is weird. Usually everything feels so chaotic, like the hosts are scrambling, trying to figure out what to do, but this this feels organized. 1.15 p.m. 1.15? Dew said. What the hell happens at 1.15? Perry opened his eyes. They've got a timeline. That's when the gate will open up. I don't know why this is so strong. I mean, it's really strong. 
and it's got nothing to do with the hatchlings. It's 11.15 right now, Dew said. We've got less than 90 minutes. Perry, focus on that building. See if you can recognize it, or at least describe it to me. Milner's voice in his earpiece. Dew, can you talk? Perry's eyes opened. He had the same earpiece, so he also heard Milner's voice. Jesus, Milner, not now! Some of Ogden's men are coming down the driveway, Milner said. Two Hummers. You want to come out? Handle it, Dew said. Tell them whatever it is has to wait. I've got it, Tom said. Heading out now. Come on, Perry, Dew said. Concentrate. Perry closed his eyes. His face started to crease. This is confusing, he said. Now I'm getting a bunch of feelings, emotions, hatred, anger. Just breathe, kid, Dew said. Take your time. Just breathe and figure it out. Dustin Clymer waved from the passenger seat as the Humvee slowed to a stop on the Jewel's icy dirt driveway. His driver eased over to the left side, allowing the Humvee behind to pull up on the right. The burnt-out husk of a house sat before them. Off to the left, the two Margo-mobile trailers side-by-side and connected. To the right, a big, bare tree with a rope swing. Five men in his Hummer, four in the other. More than enough to get the job done. He waved again to the man standing in front of the Margo-mobile. Clymer hopped out and walked forward. He recognized the mustached face of that CIA puke Claude Baumgartner. Afternoon, gents, Baumgartner said. What's up? We came for the hatchlings, Clymer said. Ogden wants them moved to the camp. Baum shook his head. Uh, I don't think we can do that right now. Clymer smiled. Sure we can, Bomber. It's just a matter of who calls the shots. Perry knew that building. Black, tall, glossy. Usually, he had to listen very carefully to sense anything in the chatter, but this was different. Now he had to block things out, try to ignore the random thoughts ripping through his head. But that could only happen if there were a bunch of hosts, way more than the three he'd sensed in Glidden. The image of the building crystallized. The Renaissance Center. Perry's eyes shot open. The chatter wasn't getting louder because the hosts had more power. It was getting louder because just like before, he was getting closer to the hosts. More accurately, the hosts were getting closer to him. Oh, shit, do Perry said. I'm hearing Ogden's men. They're here to kill me. A muffled gunshot from outside, then another, then another. Milner's voice blasted in Perry's earpiece. Ogden's men just shot Baum. Dew drew his forty-five. Milner, defend yourself. These guys are with the hatchlings. More gunshots. Perry heard them from both outside the trailer and in his helmet speakers. That meant gunshots inside the computer room. Milner trading fire. Just as quickly as it started, the gunfire stopped. Milner was likely dead. The men would come through the decontamination area, into the autopsy room, then across the collapsible connector and into trailer B. Then they would kill Perry and do both. Dew ran to the airlock door, reached to open it, then paused. He turned to face Perry. What about the hatchlings? Dew said. Do they want those? Yeah, but I'm the main target. Men shouting, things falling. The airlock door light changed from green to red. Someone had just opened the opposite door on the other side of the walkway. Footsteps on the collapsible grate outside. 
They were right outside the door to Trailer B. Don't try to open this door, Dew shouted. We've got two hatchlings in here, and we'll kill them. The man on the other side of the airlock door sounded both happy and angry at once. If you do that, we're going to torture you for a long time. Give them to us, and we'll let you go. More footsteps outside, more men packing into the collapsible hallway. Perry didn't know what to do. He waited for Dew to say something, anything. They were so fucked. Perry, Dew whispered, too quietly to be heard through the airlock door, but Perry heard him in his earpiece just fine. On the containment cell's control panel, type in pound, five, four, five, and then as soon as the airlock light turns green, hit five again. Perry ran the four steps to the isolation chamber's door. He typed in the numbers. His fingertip hovered over the final five. A pounding on the airlock door. Time's up, asshole, the man outside yelled. We've got a lot of firepower out here. And I've got some in here, Dew said. He raised his forty-five and emptied the magazine at the hatchling cage on the left. Just like with Perry's shots from the day before, the glass spiderwebbed as bullets tore the hatchling to splattery pieces. Dew's empty magazine hit the floor and he reloaded. You fucker, the man screamed. More footsteps outside the airlock, then a solid thump. The airlock door from trailer A, closing. The light above Dew turned from red to green. That equalized pressure in the walkway. Ogden's men were coming in. Perry pressed the five. Spray nozzles in the ceiling, the floor, and the walls erupted with a heavy mist of concentrated bleach and chlorine gas. Perry's visor instantly beaded up with a deadly liquid. They heard initial noises of confusion from outside the door, then screams of panic, coughing, and vomiting. Gunfire erupted, but no bullets hit the airlock door. Make sure your safety is off, Dew said. Follow me, watch my back, and make sure you don't point your gun my way, you got it? Perry nodded quickly. Dew opened the airlock door and started shooting. Perry followed onto the collapsible walkway, the chlorine fog so concentrated that he could barely make out the three bodies lying on the grate, tearing at the small holes they'd shot in the walkway's collapsible walls. Dew pulled the trigger six times, two for each man. They stopped moving. Perry followed Dew, but felt a slight pressure on his right thigh. His heads-up display flashed a message in orange letters. Suit integrity breach. He looked down at his thigh. A piece of metal in the shot-up, torn walkway had ripped a three-inch gash in his suit. Chlorine gas roiled around the tear. Perry froze for just a second, thinking that this was it, that his lungs would burn, before he realized that air was shooting out of the cut, not in. His suit's positive air pressure. Perry heard four more gunshots from inside the autopsy room. Dossie, move it! He reached down with his right hand and grabbed the cut, bunching the material and sealing off the hole as best he could. He ran into the autopsy room. Two more bodies. Dew reloading again. You idiot! Dew said. Did you tear your fucking suit? Just go already! Dew turned and ran into the main decontamination chamber. Two more men clawing at themselves, trying to break free of the chlorine spray that shot into their noses, their screaming mouths, their eyes. Dew killed them both. A roar from outside and the tearing of metal. Get down! Dew screamed as he dove to the bleach-wet floor. 
bullets tore huge holes in the decontamination chamber walls. Someone outside opening up on the trailer. Perry hit the deck hard, adrenaline raging through his body. His hand came off the hole in his thigh as he hit, and he scrambled one-handed to close it up again. Machine gun fire sawed through the trailer walls. The air filled with flying chunks of white epoxy, yellow insulation, and a disturbing amount of thin, jagged metal torn from the trailer's exterior. An explosion rocked the trailer on its suspension, throwing Perry up in the air and smashing Dew headfirst against the wall. The walls buckled and twisted. Perry landed hard on a bent floor. Dew slumped to his belly, then rolled on his side. Dew! Dew, are you okay? What the fuck was that? Grenade, Dew said, his voice oddly calm. In the computer center. They'll throw one in here next. Perry saw chlorine gas roiling away from three spots on Dew's helmet. His faceplate was cracked. Higher pressure air pushed out from the new holes. That's not good, Dew said. No fucking shit! They were both leaking air. The compressors on their suits could only compensate for so long. Take the guy outside, Dew said as he scrambled to his feet. Hit him or we're dead. Perry saw a gaping bullet hole at the base of the wall. Sunlight poured through, lighting up a beam of green mist. He crawled toward it and forced himself to look out. The guy was on top of a Humvee, shooting a huge gun mounted in a turret. Perry was wearing bulky gloves. Spraying mist kept beating up on his visor. He held his right thigh with one hand and someone was shooting at him. But the guy was only about 20 feet away. Perry rolled to his side and extended his left arm. He aimed Dew's 45 at the man's head and pulled the trigger until the slide locked on empty. The machine gun fire stopped. The man went limp and fell sideways. He half hung off the turret's right side. He didn't move. Perry heard the seven-shot report of another 45. Perry, I'm outside. Perry scrambled to his feet, a little too fast. He caught another piece of ripped wall on his left arm, and the suit tore again. He didn't bother looking at it, just ran out of the decontamination room and into the final airlock walkway. The last door hung partly open, bent and twisted, full of small holes. Perry sprinted the last ten feet, shouldered the door without breaking stride, and found himself outside in a sunny winter afternoon. Dew stood in the middle of the burned-out house, crouched in a wide stance, his forty-five in front of him as he swept it back and forth. Not knowing what else to do, Perry did the same. Dew emptied a magazine into the dead man in the Humvee turret, just to be sure, apparently. He reloaded, then let out a long sigh. Fuck, he said. This is completely fucked, kid. He took off his helmet and looked at it. Perry saw four or five cracks. The thing was useless. At least it served its purpose, Dew said, and tossed the helmet away. He looked at Perry's suit. I don't think brown sticky tape is going to help that. Perry looked at his left arm. Something had hooked the PVC just past his wrist, then torn the fabric almost to the shoulder. Perry, you're sure that gate opens at 1.15? Perry nodded. Yeah, totally. They heard engines. Heavy vehicles coming down the driveway. General Charlie Ogden stood in the back of the Winnebago, waiting for Chelsea to say something. She just sat there, petting Fluffy. 
She no longer looked like an icon of love. She looked flat-out pissed, her small face furrowed with anger. He knows we are here. He is coming. Are you sure? You sure they didn't get him? I can sense him. You failed. What about the men we sent to attack Whiskey Company? They are dead. You failed. Ogden said nothing. He'd known that all the men would die. Even with the element of surprise, the odds were just too great. But if he'd kept all 18 men together, they would have crippled Whiskey Company. This was Chelsea's fault. Ogden pushed the thought away. Chelsea knew best. He seized that belief and held it because it was far better than imagining himself suffering the same fate as her mother. Chelsea, what now? There is nothing we can do to stop the boogeyman from coming. We need more time. Start the contingency plan. Ogden nodded. Yes, Chelsea, I'll begin immediately. Do scan the jewel's yard for a place to hide. The vehicles out on the road sounded like approaching Humvees. More of Ogden's troops. He holstered his 45 and ran to the man he'd killed outside the computer room. He slung the man's M4 and pulled at his ammo belt. The goddamn biohazard suit was getting in the way. He couldn't possibly run through the woods in that. They'd catch him in minutes. He unzipped and started taking it off when Perry called out. They're coming! Dew turned and looked. His balls shriveled up. Five Humvees roaring down the long driveway. He was out of time. Dew looked for cover. A sagging, charred wreck of a refrigerator. He ran behind it, then aimed his M4 at the lead vehicle. Dew, don't shoot, Perry said. I'm not hearing any chatter. Dew looked at him, then back to the Humvees that were almost on top of them. Well, too late anyway, Dew said. The front Hummer slid to a halt behind the two that had brought their attackers. Soldiers pointing M4s poured out, led by the blocky figure of a man almost as big as Perry. A bandage circled his head, bright white against his black skin, a red spot on the left temple. He wore a Sergeant Major chevrons and star. Dew saw that some of the other men also had fresh bandages. The man looked at Perry, then strode toward Dew. Dew scrambled around the melted fridge. He felt silly standing there in his scrubs, the biohazard suit dangling off at the waist. The sergeant major snapped a salute so rigid and perfect that it was damn near comical. Dew returned the salute, only because he'd seen men like this many times. This guy would hold that ridiculous salute all damn day if he had to. The man lowered the salute and slid into an at-ease stance. Are you Agent Dew Phillips? I am, Dew said, wincing at the man's bellowing voice. Sergeant Major Devon Nielsen, sir, Domestic Reaction Battalion, Whiskey Company. Dew would have described Devon as huge if he hadn't been hanging around Perry Dossie as of late. Devon's big neck supported a pitch-black head. A graying high and tight peeked out from the bloody white bandage around his head. His eyes seemed extremely wide. Dew could see all of the man's irises. The look bespoke rage or shock, but seemed to be Devon's normal expression. His lower lip was too big for his mouth and stuck out in a perpetual pout. Whiskey Company? Dew said. Can you get me Captain Lodge? He's the commander, right? Was the commander, sir? Captain Lodge is dead. What happened? Sir, an X-ray company squad came into our area of the airport, then started shooting, throwing grenades, and launching AT-4 shoulder-fired rockets. 
After we dealt with them, we attempted to locate Colonel Ogden, but his portion of the camp was empty and his men will not answer our calls. We called Deputy Director Longworth. He told us to find you immediately. This is bad news, Nielsen, Dew said. How many casualties? Thirty-two dead, sir, Nielsen said. The X-ray squad had complete surprise and they were very efficient. Another 25 wounded that need to stay put. We've got 63 men fit for duty. Just tell us what to do, sir. Stop calling me sir, Dew said. I work for a living. Sergeant Major, have you seen any real combat action? In Somalia, Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, and Iraq, Nielsen said. I have busted heads and killed on three continents, and if there are any more members of X-Ray Company that need to be dealt with, I'll add North America as my fourth. If it had been possible to relax in the current fucked-up situation, Dew would have done so. Devon Nielsen was a gift from above. His men would follow him anywhere. Sergeant Major, something tells me you have a nickname? At times, people call me Nails. Nails, you're now officially in command of Whiskey Company. I'm going to venture a guess that you already established our transport options. We have three Ospreys, including the one assigned to you, Nails said. Sixty-five men, including the two of you, will be a little snug, but the Ospreys will take us all. Load them up, Dew said. We're all heading to Detroit. 11.55 a.m. The five-second rule. Alan Rourke stopped the Humvee right in the middle of the I-75 overpass. Horns immediately started honking from behind. He ignored them and finished cramming the rest of his Big Mac into his mouth. The things were so fucking good. He tried to drink from his Coke, but all he got was the bottom of the cup straw sound. Peter passed over his Coke, which looked half full. Alan smiled a thanks, then drank. It soaked the giant bite of Big Mac sitting in his mouth. The horns kept honking. Alan swallowed and let out a big, ah. Dude, Peter said, you need to take smaller bites, seriously. True, Alan said, just got carried away. Are you ready? Peter nodded. That guy's horn is bugging me. Maybe we should show him what it means to love instead of hate. Chelsea would like that, Alan said, but we don't have time. I'll talk to him. He opened the door carefully and stepped out into the hazy gray light of a frigid winter afternoon. Cars whizzed by in the second lane, missing him by inches, kicking up fine sprays of dirty slush. The guy kept honking. Alan reached back in and grabbed his M4. He saw a french fry in the seat and popped it into his mouth. It was still warm, five-second rule and all. As he chewed, he walked to the Hummer's back bumper. The car behind him was an SUV. Who still drove those things? Pretty fucking tough on the environment. The driver saw Alan, saw Alan's gun. He stopped honking. Alan pointed the M4 and squeezed off a burst. The SUV's windshield spiderwebbed, splattering with red from the inside. Tires screeched. People saw him and swerved, not thinking about the fact that they were on an overpass and there was nowhere to swerve. Cars smashed. Metal ground, plastic cracked, glass scattered. Alan turned and saw Peter leaning over the overpass rail, an AT-4 rocket on his shoulder. A cone of flame belched out the back as the rocket streaked down, trailing smoke for two seconds before it hit a gray Chrysler. 
The car turned into a fireball, rolling along at 65 miles an hour, spewing parts and burning tires as it went. Peter dropped the empty rocket tube, aimed his M4, and started firing on the panicked traffic below. Alan would join him in a second, but first he had to take care of all the people suddenly stuck in their cars. In only 10 seconds, the eight-mile road overpass was already shut down. Alan pointed, squeezed off a burst, then turned to the next target and repeated. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Noon. It hits the fan. Murray Longworth hated the goddamn situation room. He'd had it. Just had it. Maybe Vanessa Colburn was right. Maybe it was time for a new generation. Let the kids have the country. It was time for Murray Longworth to go golfing. They'd killed the satellite, goddammit. They'd won. It should have been over, and now a wave of bad news so high he could drown in it. A sense of hopelessness. A feeling that no matter what you did, the enemy was going to keep coming, keep trying to kill you. It didn't just depress him. It exhausted him. 33 soldiers dead at the Gaylord Airport. 33 so far because some of the wounded weren't going to make it. Ogden gone AWOL. The exterminators unaccounted for. And now, Detroit. They had all gathered in the Situation Room. The Joint Chiefs, the Secretary of Defense, Tom Maskell, Vanessa. Gutierrez himself would be there soon. The main flat panel screen changed to a news helicopter shot of a highway. 
The bottom left corner of the screen showed a logo for Detroit's WXYZ TV. The bottom center of the screen read 8 Mile Overpass at I-75. Hundreds of cars sat motionless on the three lanes heading north as well as the three lanes heading south. On I-75, cars had driven up the inclined shoulder, some stopping there, others rolling back down to land on their sides or roofs. The traffic on the overpass itself looked much the same. Motionless cars, smoke, flames, and bodies sprawled everywhere. The only movement was near one green vehicle, a Humvee. Even from the high angle, Murray could see two men in fatigues. Wherever they moved, little puffs of smoke from automatic weapons soon followed. The speakers suddenly played the sound that accompanied the image. We don't know who these men are or how many people are hurt. We can see bodies from here. The vehicle is Army Green, but there is no unit insignia. An air response was already on the way. A-10 tank killers from Selfridge would be the first to engage, then Apache attack helicopters. Murray had even scrambled Ogden's squadron of four dedicated strike eagles. He just prayed he wouldn't have to use any bombs on Detroit. Murray, Tom said. Murray tore his eyes away from the screen. Tom had a phone in his hand. Do Phillips on line two. Said it's mission critical. Murray nodded, grabbed the nearest phone, and hit line two as he looked back to the surreal carnage on the screen. Do, Murray said. You okay? Yeah. So was Perry, but a squad of Ogden's men tried to kill us. They took out Baum and Milner. Perry identified the gate location. It's in Detroit, and apparently it opens up at 115 sharp. We've got a lot of gunfire in Detroit, Murray said. Rockets, too. Looks like more of Ogden's men. He's AWOL, so he's either dead or hiding somewhere and calling the shots. We know, Dew said. It's all over the news. Where are you? With Whiskey Company, Dew said. Two platoons and three Ospreys headed for Detroit. We'll be there in 30 minutes. We'll set down, then Perry will find the gate. Murray popped four more tums into his mouth and chewed. This couldn't be happening. They'd had it won. There's another, Tom called out. Dew, hold on, Murray said. He looked at the screen. The bottom left corner of this one showed Fox 2 News. The center bottom of the screen read 8-mile overpass at M10 John C. Lodge Freeway. The scene looked like a mirror image of the other. Hundreds of cars piled up on the road. A Humvee on the overpass with soldiers firing away. Nothing could get through that tangled mess of cars. Ogden was shutting down the highways into and out of Detroit. Murray turned his attention back to the call. Do if this is Ogden's doing, what the hell is he up to? Causing chaos, Dew said. Looks like he's trying to block all traffic in and out. He wants a big perimeter with lots of civilians inside it, so you won't drop bombs if we find the gate. Motherfucker, Murray said. Are the other two Domrek companies still at Fort Bragg? They're already on their way to Detroit, Murray said. They should land at DTW in about 30 minutes. I'll also activate the 82nd Airborne. It'll take them eight hours. But his voice trailed off. He didn't need to finish. If the gate opened and something came through, the 82nd would be the first organized unit to tackle it. I hear you, Dew said. One more thing. Sergeant Major Nielsen said he saw at least two platoons of X-ray company at the airport this morning. They aren't there now, and there's only two squads accounted for. 
That means a platoon and a half has to be on the way to Detroit. Roughly 45 men. Get some birds in the air and take them out. Take them out, Murray said. We don't know those men are infected. We can set up a roadblock, test them. If they're negative, we use them to go after whatever Ogden has in Detroit. A roadblock? Dew said. Are you insane? Do you really want heavily armed, combat-tested soldiers going up against some state troopers in a roadblock? Dew was right. I'll take care of it, Murray said. Get on the offensive, Murray. Pin them down, whatever it takes. We have to get Perry on the ground in Detroit so we can find a gate. Wait for Yankee and Zulu companies to arrive from Fort Bragg, Murray said. Ogden's units have 10 Stinger missiles, and you can bet he took them all to Detroit. We need to account for those before you go in. We can't afford to lose Dossie. LT, if Perry's right about the time, that thing opens up in 75 minutes. Whatever you do, don't drag your feet. Just hold outside the city, Murray said. We'll get to work softening up his positions, tasking satellite coverage to see if we can spot the gate and find you some place to land. 12.15 p.m. Dew warns Margot. Margaret stood in the isolation chamber, looking down at Officer Carmen Sanchez. Clarence stood outside the chamber, patient, quiet, clearly ready to act if Sanchez sprang to life. But that just wasn't going to happen. Sanchez was having difficulty breathing, and it was only getting worse. She might have to intubate him soon. That, or take him off the latrunculin altogether, because he wouldn't live through another hour of treatment. His tongue still looked normal. His tissue samples no longer showed crawlers. Either the latrunculin had worked, or the last ones had moved into his brain. But if they had reached his brain, was the chemical stopping them from forming that mesh? Could the mesh form despite the chemical? No. She refused to believe that. It had worked. This was so much bigger than just Sanchez. Latrunculin worked. It killed them. Not all of them, but a lot, and that meant she had a weapon. The weapon needed development, true, but at least she had a starting point. And if it didn't work, then she had nothing. No cure. Sanchez had been exposed to a small amount of the vector. If she couldn't defeat that much, what could she do against higher amounts of exposure? Some of John Doe's pustules had grown to the size of baseballs, a hundred times the size of what had popped on Sanchez. Someone hit with that much contagion, and she'd have no chance at all. Fuck Murray's secrecy. Margaret was going public, and she'd called Dew out on his offer to back her up. Would Clarence also back her, or would he continue to obey orders? Gitch's voice in her earpiece. Otto, Dew's calling in. Patch him through, Clarence said. You're connected, Dew, Gitch said. Otto and Margaret are listening in. Dew's voice, urgent and excited. Otto, have you or your people had any contact with Ogden's men? No, sir, Clarence said. We've been working all night on the John Doe and the police officer. We didn't even know Ogden's men were in Detroit. They are, Dew said. And you are to avoid him at all costs. Your trailer, is it visible from the main road? No, we're tucked under a little railroad overpass, trees on either side. Excellent concealment, you can't see us at all. Okay, Dew said. Maybe you should just stay put. Dew, Margaret said. What's happening? Ogden is working for the Triangles. 
Margaret looked at Clarence, her anger at him forgotten for the moment. Ogden? How? How do you know? His men tried to kill Perry. Perry's okay, but they got Baum and Milner. Ogden's men are shooting the fuck out of the highways in Detroit, murdering people left and right. The gate is somewhere in Detroit, and Ogden wants to protect it. She shivered at the implications. Just like that, Ogden and his men, converted, working for the enemy. She'd missed something back in Gaylord, clearly. And even if her new drug worked, was it already too late? We're coming in, Dew said. Perry's gonna find the gate. If we can get to you, we will, but otherwise, stay put. Watch out for infected bodies, Margaret said. That's how the contagion spreads. Bodies can have big, puffy pustules filled with spores. Those pop on you, and you have the new strain. And they can spread it through their tongues, so make sure no one licks you. Understood. You have a cure for this shit yet? Margaret looked down at Sanchez. We're very close. Get your info to Murray, Margaret, in case Ogden finds you and takes you out. You guys are in a bad spot. I'm pretty sure you're inside Ogden's perimeter. Understood, Clarence said. She couldn't stop now. She had to get Sanchez out, away from the danger. Do, Margaret said. I appreciate what's going on, but we have to evacuate the patient. He could be the key to stopping this. If Ogden finds you, he'll kill you, Do said. He's hit all the major roads out of Detroit. Surface streets are jammed with people trying to leave, so there's no fucking way you can get a semi out of town. You guys either stay where you are, or you leave the trailer, find a hidey hole, and lay low till I know I can get transport to you. You got it? But, dude, this is a critical phase. We got it, Clarence interrupted. We'll evaluate the situation and act accordingly. Good, Dew said. No offense, Margo, but let Otto handle this unless you like the taste of bullets. And how about you guys put the nerd gear away once in a while and watch the fucking news? He hung up. Uh, guys? Gitch said. I think you better come to the computer room. We just turned on the local news and we're in a lot of trouble. Clarence looked at Margaret, then held an arm toward the airlock door. After you. Margaret took one more look at Sanchez, then headed to the airlock. 12.20 p.m. Bonus points. Northwest Flight 2961 from Detroit to Bangor never had a chance. The Airbus A319 jet carrying 193 passengers took off from Detroit Metro Airport. Michelle McMichael, age 63, had the window seat because Bernie, her husband of 40 years, basically had to pee every 20 minutes. He got the aisle. That was fine by Michelle. She liked to hold a map and look out the window when they flew. Using the map to identify landmarks was a fun way to pass the time. As the A319 banked to the right, it gave her a nice view of a long stretch of I-94. The map said she was looking south at Taylor, Michigan. She craned her head to look back at the airport. That was when she saw it. Michelle was no military expert, but she'd seen enough movies to know a missile's smoke trail when she saw one. And just like that, she knew that this was the end. Michelle had time to reach out and grab Bernie's hand. She looked into his eyes and said, I love you. And then the Stinger missile hit the A319 just behind the right wing. 
The war had penetrated and erupted, splitting the plane in two and ripping the right wing free from the fuselage. Michelle died on impact, she in her seat torn in three separate pieces. Bernie actually lived through the initial blast, barely, but was quickly incinerated as a fireball rolled through the broken cabin. The A319's tail spun away and started to drop. A secondary blast disintegrated the midsection. From row 10 forward, the A319's nose arced toward the city, trailing fire and smoke as if it were a second gigantic rocket. At the northwest corner of Detroit Metropolitan Airport, also known as DTW, Vining Road passes over a parallel set of railroad tracks. Under this overpass stood Brian Hunt and Jordan Willis, formerly of Domestic Reaction Battalion's X-ray Company, now proud members of Chelsea's Army. The overpass hid them and their Hummer from view, yet still gave them a clear field of fire on several of DTW's runways. Jordan had watched Flight 2961 take off waited for it to come around and start curving north. He knew that it would because he knew that it was headed to Bangor. He'd used his cell phone to look it up on a travel website. Once that curve carried the jet close to Detroit, he had aimed his Stinger missile, acquired the target, and fired. Bye-bye, Flight 2961. Fucking A, Jordan, Brian said. Chelsea will love you so much. That was a great shot. Private Jordan Willis nodded. He could only hope his actions pleased Chelsea. And it was a great fucking shot. Wait for it, he said. I think I double-dipped. Fifteen miles away from their position, the A319 trailed a thick, curved column of smoke as its nose dropped toward downtown Detroit. It sailed down into the city. Seconds later, a ball of flame rose into the sky. Bonus points, Brian said. Nice work. Thanks. Wow, look at all the planes bailing out. I'm betting they aren't asking the tower for permission to change their flight plans. One jet had been approaching, and another had been circling, waiting for clearance. Both now turned away from DTW. Those suckers were big beasts, sure, but it looked like they could still haul balls when they kicked in the engines. Brian shouldered his own stinger, looking for just the right target. Are you going to shoot that thing or just pose with it? Jordan asked. I think I'd better save it, Brian said. The general says they could still try to bring in C-5s or some C-17s. If they do that, I'll hit one on the way in. He set the stinger down and picked up one of the five AT-4 anti-tank weapons. Jordan shook his head. He liked Brian, but sometimes the guy just didn't think. It's an anti-tank missile, dumbass. Ain't no tanks here. How about a fuel tank? Brian pointed to a 747 sitting at a runway's back edge. I think that plane was probably going to take off before you shot down the other one. They can move pretty good in the air, but something tells me they can't exactly turn on a dime when they're on the ground. Jordan looked at the plane, a giant white sitting duck. Huh. I should have never doubted you, Jordan said. In fact, you've inspired me. I think I'll see if one of those AT-4s can hit the tower. I apologize for calling you a dumbass, good sir. Don't mention it. Brian said as he sighted in on the stationary 747 and pulled the trigger. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. 
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.